Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Jesus, it's just a boy. 15 years old. He's been dead a while. A single bullet was fired through his right ear. And the pony? Shot in the forehead while taking a drink. Sound familiar? Too familiar. What about the feet? Pointing due west, just like the Murphys. How could we have overlooked this? He's been missing for over a month. Do we have anything? A couple of witnesses saw a drifter coming through here about a month ago. One claims they saw him with a shiny revolver. Any idea where he went? We know someone who does. We just have to make him talk. This is Unsolved Murders, true crime stories on the ParCast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. This is our final episode on the Gatton Murders, three mysterious slayings committed near the town of Gatton, Australia in 1898. Last week, we covered the background of the murders and the discovery of the first crime scene. This week, we'll discuss the disastrous police investigation that followed and the increasing tension in the Gatton community. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. On the morning of December 27, 1898, three siblings, Mick, Nora, and Ellen Murphy, were found dead outside the town of Gatton, Australia. All three had their hands bound and were beaten viciously prior to their deaths. There were signs that they had been sexually assaulted. The bodies were discovered by their brother-in-law, William McNeil. He went out searching for the siblings when they did not arrive home from a dance the previous night. After leading Police Sergeant Errol to the crime scene, William went to break the news to his in-laws. It was a particularly unpleasant task, as he had a rocky relationship with the elder Murphys. They were strictly Irish Catholic and disapproved of his Protestant faith. When their eldest daughter, Polly, had married William two years prior, they disowned her and had only recently accepted her back into the family along with William. Nevertheless, William rushed from the scene of the murder back to the Murphy family farm, about a 45-minute ride. He arrived close to 11 in the morning. Oh, there you are, McNeil. Do you want any eggs? They're a little cold, but they're good. No, thank you, Mrs. Murphy. Did you find the children? I swear, when they get here, they're in for the whooping of a lifetime. Well, yes. I found them. What's the matter? You look awful. Mick, Nora, Ellen. They're all dead. It looks like there was an accident or something. I found them in Morn's pasture. My God. All three of them? Mom, what's going on? Oh, 
bill. It's horrible. My... <laughs> McNeil? They're dead, Bill. Such a mess you never saw in all your life. Upon hearing the news, one of the elder Murphy's sons, Bill, rode out to a distant patch of farmland to find his father. After Mr. Murphy was told his children were dead, it took the old man almost a half an hour to recover. When he was finally able to mount his horse, he asked Bill if his children had been shot. The only other thing he said on the long ride back home was that he was glad they had all gone to Mass on Christmas Day. As Bill and his father returned home, William took Mrs. Murphy in the family buggy to the Morin pasture, where the bodies were found to speak to the police. However, Sergeant Errol was no longer at the crime scene. He started investigating the crime scene at 10 a.m., but left after only 30 minutes. Apparently, in his rush to leave the station, he had forgotten his notebook. He needed to head back to Gatton to retrieve the notebook and also to report the murders to his superiors. Before Errol left, he asked two of the townsfolk who had accompanied him to the pasture, a blacksmith named Wilson and a man named Devitt, to make sure nobody got near the bodies. Then he galloped off towards town. Back in Gatton, Sergeant Errol picked up his notebook and went to the telegraph office. There, he meant to send a report to the police commissioner and request the help of an indigenous Australian tracker, one of a group of professionals who were often employed by European colonists to navigate the bush and find missing persons. However, for all his haste, Sergeant Errol's messages were held up at the telegraph office. At the time, low-priority telegraphs could be delayed by the station masters if they felt other messages were more important, or if other messages were first in line. In order to cut through the wait times, a person could have their telegraphs marked urgent, ensuring that messages about important matters could be relayed from station to station as quickly as possible. However, urgent telegrams cost double the standard rate. Errol requested that his report be sent at an urgent rate. However, the station master in Gatton insisted that Errol pay the extra costs. Well, naturally, the station master was incorrect. Police were authorized by law to mark telegrams as urgent for free, and Errol insisted that was the case. The two argued back and forth for some time, and inexplicably, Errol allowed himself to be cowed by the station master. Of course, rather than pay the fee out of pocket, Errol decided to send the telegram at an ordinary rate. Sergeant Errol waited at the office for half an hour but received no reply. He hurried back to the crime scene. Unsurprisingly, by the time he got there, at approximately a quarter past noon, the scene had all but been obliterated. News of the murders had spread like wildfire through the town and a massive crowd had gathered around the bodies. Wilson and Devitt had done their best to hold the people back, but the onlookers paid them no mind. They trampled the area surrounding the bodies, making sure that any tracks that may have been left behind by the killer were thoroughly erased. Even when Errol returned, the crowd refused to listen to reason. They stepped back at his orders, but would re-encroach on the scene the second he turned away. Upon his second inspection, Errol found clues he had missed before. There were traces of semen on Nora and Ellen's undergarments, and a large branch covered in blood was found near the surrounding trees. 
The branch was so heavy, Errol found it difficult to lift above his head. While Errol finished his second examination, William and Mrs. Murphy arrived at the pasture. Mrs. Murphy brought sheets to cover her children's bodies. She begged Sergeant Errol to remove the partially undressed bodies from public view. By now, at least 40 people had congregated around the scene, and none were willing to stay back a respectful distance. Errol wanted to wait for a doctor to arrive before he moved the bodies, but eventually Mrs. Murphy's tearful requests combined with the crowd's insubordination became too much for him. In a moment of supreme frustration, Errol finally agreed to move the bodies. Nora and Ellen were placed in the Murphy buggy, and Mick was laid in another cart. The sergeant remained at the scene and turned his attention to Tom, the Murphy's dead horse. He could tell it had been shot in the forehead. The hair of its mane was singed by the gunshot. In order to figure out what kind of bullet had been used to shoot the horse, Tom was cut into smaller pieces. With Errol's supervision, laborers carried the segments to the slaughterhouse outside of town. The horse parts were then boiled down. At the end of the boiling process, a single 38 caliber bullet was found, likely fired from a revolver. Meanwhile, the elder Murphys were comforted by their friends at the Brian Baru Hotel as the local undertaker helped transport the bodies. But though some members of the community tried to help, others started to spread gossip. For instance, the son of the undertaker, William Miller, was carrying coffins past the hotel when he claimed to overhear Daniel Murphy talking to the hotel owner and another man about his children. Have you any idea who did the deed? I do. Jesus. Are you not afraid to say that? I will not say it to anyone else. I don't want any more lives lost over the affair. Are you sure? What was that? Charlie Miller ran off immediately to tell his father about the conversation. According to him, it sounded like Daniel Murphy had been drinking a little. Stories like this led to later speculation about possible hidden motives of the killer or killers. There are reasons to believe Mr. and Mrs. Murphy knew something about the deaths of their children, even though it was never proven. For example, it's odd that Mrs. Murphy didn't ask any questions when William told her that the children were dead. The only thing Mr. Murphy asked was whether or not they had been shot. They were certainly aggrieved by the deaths, but they seemed curiously uninterested in catching the killer. The reactions of the Murphy siblings also support this idea. The last one to learn of the murders was Danny Murphy, a constable who lived in Brisbane. Danny received a telegram informing him of the deaths at 12.30 p.m. on December 27th. At first, he thought it was a cruel joke and went to the telegraph office to verify that the message was real. Once it was confirmed, Danny was overcome by grief. He was overheard to say that the murderer must be a member of his own family. According to Danny, no one else could have done it. With his mind still reeling from the news, Danny requested leave to visit his family. His request was passed up the ladder, but it stalled at the topmost rung. Inspector Urquhart, the head of the criminal investigation branch of the Australian police, believed the telegram from Gatton was a hoax. Later, Urquhart would blame a Sergeant Masterson, who spoke to him right after the telegram was received. 
Sergeant Masterson apparently believed the telegram was fake for an unspecified reason. Urker took his word for it and left for a two-hour lunch. When he returned to the station, he was told there had been no updates on the case. Why he wasn't told about Danny Murphy's request for leave at this point is unclear. Urquhart went back home after spending another hour at the station. And just as he got home around 4.15 p.m., a constable caught up to him. At this point, Urquhart was finally told Danny Murphy had confirmed the telegram's validity and was requesting leave. No other superior officer was available to grant him permission. Clearly, the department was not what you'd call a well-oiled machine. Inspector Urquhart gave his permission, but then, despite being asked to immediately return to his office, he stayed home for another couple of hours and had dinner with his family. It wasn't until 7 p.m. that he returned to his office, and it was 9 p.m. by the time he informed the police commissioner of the crime. The original telegram had been sent from Gatton at 11 o'clock that morning. By now, tracks around the crime scene had been erased, Experienced police officers were heading to the scene a full day late, and detailed questioning had yet to be carried out. But the bungling of the case had only just begun. We'll delve deeper into the disastrous murder investigation after this. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases, But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. Mick, Nora, and Ellen Murphy were brutally murdered on the night of December 26th 1898. From the very beginning of the investigation, police were communicating poorly and making many mistakes. These mistakes continued when Police Sergeant Errol called a doctor to the town of Gatton, Australia, to perform the autopsies. In the early afternoon, Dr. Von Losberg arrived in the small town by train. Well, because Gatton was too small to have its own doctor, Von Losberg came from the nearby city of Ipswich. It took him some time to find the bodies of the victims. They had been moved to a room in the Brian Baru Hotel, where the autopsies were finally performed around 3 p.m. Dr. Von Losberg's first examinations were performed hurriedly and superficially. He failed to detect anything that was not obvious from Sergeant Errol's own observations. He found that Ellen and Nora had been struck on the sides of their heads. There were scratches on their lower bodies, and they had been bound tightly by the wrists before the murders. He also determined that they had both been sexually assaulted. The doctor did not examine any of the internal organs of the victims. 
though the existence of many deep scratches on Nora's thighs suggested she had been violated by multiple attackers, von Losberg did not include that in his official report. Mix was the third body to be investigated. He had sustained head wounds similar to those of his sisters. In addition, his genitals were swollen and there was semen found on the inside of his trousers. It was not clear what may have caused the presence of bodily fluids, and thus the doctor ruled the emission had occurred post-mortem. However, Mick's pants were unbuttoned when he was found, and his shirt was tucked into them. Yet there was no fluid on the lower part of his shirt. It's thus likely Mick was also sexually assaulted and his shirt was tucked in afterward. This possibility was ignored by the doctor, and the bodies were given the okay to be buried. William McNeil, the Murphy's brother-in-law, organized and paid for the funerals, likely as a gesture of compassion to the family. Mr. Murphy was apparently still too distraught to make any arrangements himself. The next day, December 28th, the service was held. The entire town was shuttered and flags were flown at half-mast. People flocked in from the surrounding areas to attend the funeral. All in all, there were around a thousand people there, twice the population of Gatton. The small community had ground to a halt. The murders were all anyone could talk about. After the funeral, the investigation proceeded slowly. Inspector Urquhart arrived during the service too late to examine the bodies for himself. After a week of limited police progress, a reward was publicly offered for information leading to the capture of the killers. The amount was staggering, 1,000 pounds, worth around $160,000 today. A pardon was also offered to anyone who assisted in the crime or had knowledge of it beforehand, as long as they were not the murderer themselves. Unfortunately, early on, investigators did not receive any useful tips. They were left to wonder amongst themselves about certain aspects of the case, like the cause of McMurphy's death. Dr. Von Losberg originally declared that he had been killed by blunt force trauma, likely from the bloody branch Errol found at the scene. Later, he claimed to have suspicions that Mick was shot. It was established that there was definitely a gun at the scene as it was used to shoot the horse. Because the confusion could not be cleared up, Inspector Urquhart made the extraordinary decision to exhume the bodies and perform a second autopsy. The Murphys were originally fervently opposed on religious grounds, but thanks to the intervention of the local priest, they eventually assented. To avoid public outcry, the operation was carried out in secret at 3 o'clock in the morning on January 4th, just a week after the burial. This is unholy. If you had been thorough during the first examination, we wouldn't be in this situation. How dare you? You try examining a woman without Mrs. Murphy wailing in your ear. It was impossible. That's enough complaining. We haven't even gotten to the hard part yet. Was Mrs. Murphy really wailing? Well, no. But she was certainly sobbing and interrupting me as often as possible. It's as if she paid no heed to the investigation at all. As a matter of fact, the Murphy family has been entirely uncooperative as of late. They flat out refused to lend any officers their horses. We had to hire them from the other townsfolk. Every family grieves in its own way. Perhaps. The second autopsy, performed by a Dr. Ray with Dr. Von Losberg assisting, 
came to very different conclusions than the first. Dr. Ray believed, unlike von Losberg, that the victims had been laying down rather than sitting up when they were struck. He also believed a left-handed man had dealt the blows. The most significant finding was a bullet in the skull of Mick Murphy. Apparently, he was struck in the head after the bullet was fired, obscuring the entry point of the bullet, which von Losberg had missed. While investigators took in the new information, the murders continued to be the number one topic of conversation around town. No actual witnesses to the crime came forward, but several people reported hearing gunshots that night. One woman who lived on the property adjoining Morin's pasture swore she heard a woman's voice screaming something that sounded like the word father. Vicious rumors were concocted based on this story. One of the most defamatory was that the Murphy daughters had incestuous relationships with the men in the family, but there was no evidence for the claim besides the mysterious yelling. One of the other popular theories was that William McNeil was responsible for the killings. He had a clear history of disagreement with all three of the siblings, giving him a motive. Even some in the Murphy family suspected him. One investigator, Police Sergeant Toomey, claimed Patrick and Danny Murphy both told him they considered William a possible culprit. But neither of them were at the house on Boxing Night. Patrick was riding back to the Agricultural College, and Danny was in Brisbane, where he was a constable. The Murphys, who lived at home, were the ones who furnished William with an alibi. Most of the Murphys saw William at 9 p.m. the night of the murders, as he headed to bed. But Mrs. Murphy stayed up late tending to her granddaughter. She went into Polly and William's room and turned off a lamp around 11 p.m. According to her, William was in bed with Polly, sleeping soundly at the time. Of all the Murphys, it seems least likely that she would be the one to lie to the police. She didn't get along with William McNeil, just like the rest of the family. With Mrs. Murphy's testimony, William seemed to have an ironclad alibi. But still, for Pat and Danny to have suspected William, then they must have felt it was possible their mother was lying to protect him. If she was lying, then it would have been possible for William to sneak out of his window while everyone else was asleep that night. Then he could have conceivably written to the Morin pasture and caught the siblings on their way back from Gatton. But if William McNeil was not the killer, it was hard to find someone else with motive. Mick, Nora, and Ellen had all been respected within the community. Nora and Ellen were kept heavily sheltered by their mother, so it's unlikely that they even had the opportunity to make enemies. Then there was Mick. While popular opinion around town regarded him as the pinnacle of integrity, he did not drink and had no known girlfriends or adversaries. But as police dove deeper into his private life, a different image of Mick Murphy began to emerge. An anonymous letter sent to the police alleged that he was lustful with the local girls and had seduced a few of them. The letter further related that Mick had gotten 19-year-old Kate Ryan pregnant a year before, in 1897. Supposedly, Mick had offered to marry Kate, but she refused. The affair ended in tragedy. Both Kate Ryan and the baby died during childbirth. According to the letter, the Ryans had vowed to make Mick pay for what he had done. 
Inspector Urquhart dismissed the letter as another in a mountain of lies and speculation. He wrote that the Ryan sister had given birth and married another man and afterward lived a happy life. But once again, Urquhart had failed to verify his facts. He had two Ryan families mixed up. This was not surprising as there were eight Ryan households in the district, but there was in fact a Kate Ryan who lived near the Murphys. She died in 1897, just one year before the murders at 19 years old. A second letter soon arrived at the police station, bearing much of the same information. And the sender of the letter, a friend of Kate Ryan named Rosie Brown, was discovered, but police did not follow up on the information, and the mystery of Mick's romantic life remained uninvestigated. One reason the investigation did not take a closer look at the local aspect of the murders, including Mick's alleged secret romances, was the discovery of another victim. On January 7, 1899, the body of 15-year-old Alfred Hill was found near the town of Oxley, a couple of hours from Gatton. Alfred had been missing since December 10th. That afternoon, he left his parents' house outside of Oxley to spend the weekend with his aunt and uncle near Brisbane. He was expected to arrive at his relative's house after a few hours of travel and stay there over the weekend. He never made it. When he did not return to his parents by Tuesday the following week, they went to visit their relatives. Alfred's aunt and uncle told them he had never arrived on Friday. They had assumed he had called the trip off for some reason. Mr. and Mrs. Wood frantically headed to the nearest police station and spoke to Police Sergeant Small. Excuse me, sir. My son's been missing since Friday. He was supposed to visit his aunt and uncle, but they say he never arrived. How old is your son? He's 15 years old. I do not think there is any need to be frightened. Go to Brisbane and make inquiries. Boys always run away. Our boy is different. Please help us mount a search. We might not have much time. I'm sorry, sir. I know you must be worried, but he'll turn up soon. There's no need for a search. Alfred did not run away. He left his watch and pocket money under his pillow before he left, for God's sake. Sergeant, we're begging you. I'm frightened he's either lost in the bush or murdered. Look, if he does not return in a couple of weeks, I'll file a report. Right now, there's nothing I can do. The Hills refused to take no for an answer. They went above the heads of the local authorities and traveled to the Criminal Investigation Branch headquarters. There, they spoke to a Sergeant Shanahan while Inspector Urquhart was out of town investigating the Gatton murders. Sergeant Shanahan was no more help than Sergeant Small. He was even ruder to Mr. Hill and ignored his desperate pleas for help. When Urquhart briefly returned to the headquarters a few days later, a clerk double-checked with him to see if they should put out a missing persons notice for Alfred. Urquhart said no, not wanting to interfere with the local officers who had declined to pursue the case. The Hills were forced to take matters into their own hands. They organized search parties with the local community and looked tirelessly for their son. For a week, they found nothing. Then, on December 17, 1898, Sergeant Small noticed an arrest warrant that was filed three days earlier. It was for a school teacher who was accused of molesting young boys, Edward Wilson. 
Small looked into it and found that Wilson and his son, Claude, were spotted along the road where young Albert Hill had gone missing. He immediately sent a telegram to the Criminal Investigation Branch headquarters, suggesting that the schoolteacher could have something to do with Albert's disappearance. The headquarters ignored the telegram completely. Later, Inspector Urquhart would deny ever receiving any telegram. Sergeant Small swore he sent it. And without any reply from police headquarters, the Hill family continued to organize search parties for weeks after Alfred went missing. None of them found anything until January 7, 1899, three weeks after Sergeant Small's telegram was sent. Alfred Hill's corpse was discovered hidden in the woods. The crime scene shared a lot in common with the Gatton murders. Alfred's feet were pointing due west, just like those of all three Murphy siblings. He was shot on the right side of his head in approximately the same spot McMurphy had been. His pony was shot through the forehead, just like Tom, the horse which had been pulling the Murphy's cart that night. Well, the most frustrating similarity between the two cases was the lack of motive. Now that the body was found, a couple of people remembered seeing a shady drifter that day walking along the road. The description of the drifter roughly matched that of a mysterious stranger that was reported near the Morin pasture before the Gatton murders. Another witness remembered seeing a man and his son who matched the descriptions of Edward and Claude Wilson. Police felt they finally had a lead, but unfortunately, Wilson had thus far eluded them. He was desperately heading for the coast to catch a boat from Australia to London. Then, after several days on the run, on January 9, 1899, Edward Wilson was spotted by a police officer. Edward tried to escape, but was ridden down by the policeman and captured along with his 11-year-old son, Claude. While officers expected Edward and Claude to be unwilling to talk, they were surprised to find that Claude was incredibly cooperative during the questioning. He confirmed that he and his father had passed both the mysterious drifter and a boy on a pony. According to Claude, his father had pulled over after passing the boy. He left Claude with the horses and followed the boy into the woods. Claude heard two gunshots after that. Then Edward returned and told his son he had shot a hawk. However, Edward was not carrying a hawk with him and was also no longer carrying his distinctive revolver. It was a shiny nickel-plated pistol, and Claude noticed immediately it was missing. After that, Claude and Edward took a confusing route to a hotel three miles away. Edward drove so erratically and took such a circuitous path that it took them three hours to travel only those three miles. For the rest of the evening and the next morning, Edward was on edge. He slept in his son's bed, down two strong drinks at breakfast, and left town as quickly as possible. And he insisted that Claude keep the hawk story a secret. Of course, someone who is on the run from the law would likely be tense anyway. But that's exactly why taking three hours to travel three miles with the police on his trail was such an odd decision. Edward was acting like there was someone else after him. He was acting afraid. Unfortunately, Edward refused to answer questions when he was captured except to say that he had lost his gun near Oxley. So we don't know for sure what happened in the woods between him and young Alfred Hill. 
Well, the police believed at the time that Edwards' revolver was taken by the drifter. Considering there was no evidence of sexual assault when Alfred's body was found, well, there would have been no reason for Edward to kill the boy. Instead, it seems likely the drifter shot Alfred's pony with a revolver to prevent him from escaping. Then he must have shot Alfred as Claude only heard two shots. But the reason he stopped short of shooting Edward is a mystery. It's possible Edward convinced him that he was a fellow fugitive and could be trusted to keep quiet. Or the revolver might not have been fully loaded and only had two shots in it. Edward could also have promised the drifter something in exchange for his life, though it's unknown what that might have been. We'll never know how Edward Wilson got away, and the mysteries only multiplied as investigators dug deeper. We'll explore the next development in the Gatton case after this. Now, back to the story. In January of 1899, police in Gatton, Australia, had connected the murders of the three Murphy siblings on December 26, 1898, with the death of a young boy found outside the town of Oxley, about 40 miles away. Inspector Urquhart of the Criminal Investigation Branch believes strongly that a mysterious drifter seen around Oxley was the same man witnesses had seen near the murder scene in Gatton. To this end, every itinerant traveler who had been seen around Gatton at the time of the murders was tracked down and brought in for questioning. After an exhaustive interview process, Urquhart felt they had found their man in Richard Burgess. Richard was a 39-year-old ex-convict originally from Ireland who had spent his life drifting in and out of jail. Ten days before the murder of Alfred Hill, Richard was released from an island prison near Brisbane after serving a sentence for assaulting an elderly woman. He was seen heading west, which meant he could have been heading towards Oxley. But more important than his direction was his appearance. A man who matched Richard's description was at the Oxley Hotel on the day of Alfred Hill's murder. The drifter who was seen traveling on the road where Alfred was killed was also reported to look like Richard. Richard was arrested on this basis alone. There was no evidence connecting him to either murder other than the vague witness descriptions. To keep him in police custody while more evidence was acquired, he was brought up on a bogus charge of stealing a saddle in the town of Toowoomba. There was no reason to believe that he had been in Toowoomba at the time. Although Richard was a lifelong criminal, the citizens of Gatton came to have great sympathy for him. Many of them suspected the murderers had been people who had known the Murphys personally, despite the police's adamant belief the crime was committed by an out-of-towner. Local newspapers mocked the police's inefficiency and proclaimed that Richard was not being given a fair trial. For the most part, they were right. After the charge for stealing the saddle failed to stick, police asked Richard to testify to his whereabouts every day after he left the prison in Brisbane. He provided detailed descriptions and dates of his travels, many of which were confirmed by investigators afterward. Still, Urquhart would not believe it. He had Richard stand in a lineup. Four of the people who had seen the stranger outside Morin's pasture the night of the Gatton murders were asked to identify the man that they had seen. 
Two of them, Florence Lowe and Thomas Drew, said that Richard looked like the drifter that they had seen that night. On the strength of these identifications, Inspector Urquhart kept Richard in prison throughout January and February of 1899. Unfortunately, his incarceration led the Murphy family to distance themselves even further from the police investigation. John Murphy, you were called here today to give your account of the events of December 26th. Do you remember what time you got to bed that night? I don't know. I see. Do you recall seeing William McNeil that night? I can't remember. Do you know what time any of your other siblings went to bed? No. I didn't hear them getting to bed. These people are giving too much trouble. You will be asked to speak in a moment, Inspector. John, can you remember anything at all about the night of the 26th? No. Have you always a blank memory like this? I don't know. It was odd for a grieving family to be so unhelpful and their apathy frustrated police, but in part thanks to their obstinacy, Richard was released in March of 1899 on the condition that he prove his alibi. He was required to travel with a police officer back down the path he claimed to have followed from the prison in Brisbane back in December. Richard agreed to do so, but he did not intend to make the trip easy for his unlucky companion, Sub-Inspector White. And what are we doing here, Burgess? This is where I was on Boxing Night. You see that cottage? Yes. There are four girls living in there. I tried to force my way in that night, but I was chased off. So you're admitting to breaking into the premises? I didn't do nothing. I told you I was chased off. Fine. And what did you do after that? I went up the street here knocking on doors, asking for some boiling water for my tea. Are you saying you were too lazy to even boil your own water? No sense in doing something if someone else will do it for you. <laughs> Though the journey was unpleasant, it confirmed Richard's alibi. He was able to show he knew the route well and found witnesses who confirmed his location at critical times. It seemed the police had spent two months trying to convict an innocent man. By this time, the patients and the memories of the locals were wearing thin. Urquhart, for his part, remained convinced that the unidentified drifter seen near Oxley was also responsible for the Gatton murders. But since the drifter was apparently not Richard Burgess, investigators had no idea who else it could be. One of the many problems stalling the investigation was the inspector's habit of accepting alibis without independent confirmation. For example, some local suspicion was aimed at the O'Brien brothers, Joe and Con. Joe is known to have an infatuation with Ellen Murphy and had also been arrested for petty crimes in the past. Con often cooperated with his brother in his unsavory schemes. When Con O'Brien was interviewed, he first told authorities that on the evening of the 26th, he had been searching for a lost horse. He claimed he searched for the horse without results until around 10 p.m., and then he went to bed. To corroborate this story, he pointed investigators to his roommate, Fred Minton. But Fred had left town soon after the murders and could not be located for questioning. Later, after further interrogation, 
Khan told another officer a different story. In this version, he said he successfully caught his missing horse by 10 p.m., contradicting his earlier claim that he had returned home empty-handed. Police noted that he had failed to account for his movements during the night of the murders, but did not bother to do anything about it. His brother Joe told a story that was similarly full of holes. Joe admitted he was drunk during Boxing Day at the horse races, but he claimed he had completely sobered up by the evening and had a relatively quiet night. Joe told police he went back to the Callanan family farm, where he lived and worked around 9.30 p.m. Then he went to bed at 10.30. This story was vouched for by two of his friends, the Donahue sisters. They stated they were with Joe until he went to bed at 10.30. Their corroboration came as a surprise to police, as Joe originally made no mention that they were with him. Well, this version of events was disputed by a man named Robinson, who was also staying at the Callanan's house. He claimed that on the night of the murders, he returned to the house just past 9 p.m. and did not see Joe. According to him, Joe had already left at least 15 minutes earlier. If Robinson was telling the truth, then Joe O'Brien could have conceivably made it back to town and seen the Murphys coming into Gatton for the dance around 9.10 p.m. In this case, he would have seen them abruptly turn around upon finding out the dance was canceled. Alone on his horse, he could have taken a back road and easily beaten the old Murphy cart back to Moran's pasture. He might have even had the assistance of his brother, who had lied on at least one occasion about looking for his horse that night. Well, this possibility was never explored by police, who cleared Joe early on in the investigation. Well, despite the fact that Inspector Urquhart had only just arrived in town in January 1899, he declared Joe O'Brien's story checked out without looking into it further. Joe was never re-examined, even after he was suddenly fired from the Callanan's farm a day after speaking to the police. It was largely Urquhart's unshakable confidence in his first impressions of people that stalled the investigation. Even after evidence emerged that contradicted him, he held fast to his gut feelings. For example, there was a traveling laborer named Thomas Day. Thomas had been in Oxley on December 10, 1898, exactly when Albert Hill was believed to have been killed. From Oxley, he made his way to Gatton, where he found temporary work as a butcher. Thomas claimed on the night of the murders that he had gone to bed early. He was seen having supper at 7 p.m. Afterward, he stated he went to the room where he slept and read for a while before bedtime. The story could not be verified because all other members of the household were at a fireworks show held by the butcher between 8 and 9 p.m. Thomas alone did not attend the show. The sergeant who interviewed Thomas said that he was always reading from a book called Rienzi, an obscure work about a medieval Italian politician, a strange and dense book for a traveling worker to be reading. But instead of making Urquhart suspicious, Thomas's vague stories about his background and habit of reading esoterica impressed the inspector. Thomas came off as thoughtful, at odds with what Urquhart considered to be the personality of a rapist and murderer. Nevertheless, Thomas's room was searched, and he was brought to the station for interrogation. Nothing of consequence could be found. But 
A day before he was brought in, the butcher who employed him noticed small blood stains on one of Thomas's shirts. Thomas claimed it was from carrying meat for the butcher on a wet day. But the butcher said that the spots were not consistent with what he would expect to rub off of beef. In addition, carrying meat was not one of Thomas's duties, so it's unclear when this might have occurred. Before Thomas was interviewed, the butcher advised him not to wash his shirt, as the police would want to look at the stains. Thomas washed his clothes the next day anyway, obliterating any potential evidence. Thomas was considered the number one suspect by at least two investigators, Sergeant King and Constable Christie. Christie went so far as to write a report implicating Thomas in the murder, but never filed it. He was later asked why he never turned in the report. Hey, Christie, stop there. Yes, sir. Christie, I don't want you speaking any more nonsense about Thomas Day. It's not nonsense if he's in on it. He's a quiet boy. He could not have committed the crime. He looks like a man to me. Don't lie to me, Christie, and don't go criticizing the work of better men than yourself. Thanks to Urquhart's intimidation, Christie never sent in his report and the matter was dropped. Thomas left town on January 10th after getting in an argument with his boss. Urquhart asked him to travel to the police station in Toowoomba where Richard Burgess was being held to see if Thomas could identify him. Without any real incentive to do so, Thomas did as he was asked. He went to the station and said he could not recognize Richard Burgess and then left town to join the army. He quickly changed his mind and deserted. Police tried to find him after that, but he had disappeared. Thomas was just one of several leads ignored by investigators. By April of 1899, they had failed to come up with a single viable suspect, and the investigation was ended without results. The same year, in response to public outcry, a royal commission was launched. It sought to determine why the police had failed. During the course of the inquiry, the numerous oversights of Inspector Urquhart were revealed. The commission found that many of his decisions were incomprehensible. He had failed to perform his duties as an inspector. The ultimate conclusions of the Royal Commission suspected that Thomas Day, whose real name was now known to be Theo Farmer, was responsible for the murders. But the finding was by no means conclusive. Thomas, a.k.a. Theo, was not found until the next year, in 1900. He was in a Sydney hospital under yet another assumed name, Thomas Ferner. He was dead by suicide. Well, Thomas Day definitely seems to be a likely suspect. He may have been the key to solving the case if only investigators followed through on their duties. To this day, Thomas is considered the most likely culprit by many, but there were several other loose threads. It still seems unlikely that the murders could have been committed by a single individual. And most in Gatton believed that the perpetrators were local, but Thomas was from out of town. It's possible Thomas allied with the O'Brien brothers or some other locals who had private disagreements with the Murphys. The Murphy family seemed to value its respectability above all else, So if these private disagreements involved unsavory circumstances, it would explain why they did not actively assist the police investigation. 
Ultimately, the only thing that is clear is that whoever murdered the Murphy siblings, and possibly Albert Hill, was allowed to get away with it by an incompetent police force. Well, the police failed to do their duty in following up with Thomas Day, a.k.a. Theo Farmer. With all the evidence considered, I think he is the most likely killer. He used an alias and clearly had something to hide, and the bloodstains on his clothing are too much to ignore. I don't think I agree. If he was guilty, why would he go through the trouble of traveling to Toowoomba and saying he could not identify Richard Burgess? He also didn't have a clear motive. I think it was the work of locals, probably the O'Briens. They were known criminals and Joe had expressed an attraction to Ellen. They also definitely lied to the police about their whereabouts on Boxing Night. Whatever the truth may be, the Gatton murders remain one of the most fascinating unsolved murders in Australian history. The case revealed the slimy underbelly that lay beneath an unassuming rural town and just how ruinous a headstrong leader can be to a police investigation. Two young women and one young man were murdered in cold blood and sexually assaulted. In the end, neither the local police nor the state criminal investigation branch were able to bring the perpetrators to justice. The Gatton murders are an awful example of the dangers that lie in letting one's assumptions overrule their logic. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app tap browse and type unsolved murders in the search bar you can also find us on facebook and instagram at parcast and on twitter at parcast network and if you enjoy the podcast the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen thanks for listening we'll see you next time if we live till next time unsolved murders true crime stories was created by max cutler and developed by ron cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kerry Murphy. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Tara Wells and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Rebecca Ahrens Diamond, Susanna Corrington, Heston Mosier, Manib Rahman, Brett Schneider, and Jack Shulruff.